Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Dr. Corey Dalgan, professor of sociology at Stonehill College. We're going to talk about service learning. We're going to talk about activism. We may even hear a song, which is very exciting. Before we get to any of that, I'd like to welcome Corey to the show. Corey, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Michael. It's really nice to be here. Yeah. So you have a storied career that we're going to try to get uh, a quick summary of. We always like to begin by asking our guests for their origin story. What got you to this point in your professional life and how might that be relevant to where the world of learning is going? Sure. A storied career or or a checkered uh, career. Maybe it's just a checkered story. But I'll start with just the fact that, that growing up, my parents were always involved in the community. And I think that I knew the importance of politics. My uncle was a communist organizer and my dad a communist and a socialist throughout his life. And my mom, a local educator and, and carer for, for small creatures, both human and, uh, and animals. And so when I finally got to college and started thinking about what I wanted to do in the world, I was struck by people who were teaching about um, how to change things, how to change poverty, how to change labor exploitation, how to change racism. And it seemed to me that the only real purpose of an education was to figure out how it was useful mm-hmm. in being a part of social change. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky to have a lot of incredible professors along the way, incredible friends and colleagues and, and comrades. I got to study with Howard Zinn as an undergraduate at Boston University. And it, you know, by the time I got to the University of Michigan, it was a campus uh, full of activism and really traditional lefties, Alan Wald in American studies, and more contemporary radicals like Robin Kelly in the history department. So I really was always not only getting, I think, the best of an education, but the best of an education from people who were totally immersed in social justice movements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, this was several years ago, prior to the awakening uh, that we've seen in recent years. and, And as I was doing some research into your background. You've been on the social justice, anti-racism, community activism side of things for quite some time. Can you talk about what it was like early in your career and what you've seen lately? I often start lectures and presentations for undergraduates by apologizing um, for my career. What, What drove me to do what we now call service learning and civic engagement was always being part of activist groups and movements and organizations. And I went to undergrad in the mid 80s and finished my doctorate in the early 90s. And it was pretty easy given that political era to align yourselves with movements. But it was also really at the tail end of the social movements of the 60s and 70s. We still had pretty strong and and vibrant anti-apartheid activism on campus. We had third world solidarity in general, especially with Central and South America. And the Gulf War was symbolic in that it was this redux of um, anti-war activism. And there was always a strong movement against weapons research at Michigan. 
But I think it was also a moment where the left really found itself unarmed, not to use that as a pun, but we really were not able to stop a war with what we thought were the tried and true methods of demonstrations and protests. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the failure of the left, although it's hard to talk about it without looking at how much the right, and particularly the United States government itself, played a role in defeating the social movements um, of the 60s and 70s, but we had never really retooled in a way that was effective. And part of my analysis anyway is that a lot of us started to get swayed by some of the victories we had in higher education to believe that the ch changes that we were a part of were a sign that we had succeeded. And I think it's one thing to celebrate your victories, it's another to be illusioned by them. And what was happening is that colleges and universities were still hotbeds for um, left and liberal activity. But at the same time that we were seeing these victories within higher education on a left liberal political spectrum, the politics of the country as a whole were moving further and further to the right after Reagan. Mm -hmm. And really, by the time I came of age as a PhD, most of the political landscape of the 60s and 70s had changed dramatically. Yet, I think a lot of us felt that things like service learning, and I trace back its history when I do write about it, to these social movements in the 60s and 70s. Instead of SNCC organizing against segregation or SDS organizing neighborhoods against police brutality in Newark, we now had students going out and working at shelters and soup kitchens, etc. Trying to have them understand the humanity of people in poverty and the system that they face, but never really getting at the root causes of these inequalities, which now I would say it's white supremacy, it's mm -hmm. white nationalism, and it's capitalism. Yeah. Um, and we might talk about that, but if you look at the civic engagement service learning literature, you almost never see that. Yeah. And that was what struck me ramping up for this conversation is that you're not shy about tying community education, service learning to more radical roots and more radical tactics, even to the point that it reminded me of John Lewis's concept of good trouble, where when there are unjust laws, the way you change the unjust laws is by taking action to break them and hopefully affect some kind of change. Can you talk about that? Because it does seem like a, a critical point that you're making here, that it's not just the humanitarian side and the, the em empathetic side. There's also an element of action and resistance that is very central to your thinking. Absolutely. If I came of age thinking that my education was part of my political organizing and action and my believing in a radicalism that was about structural changes, my work in service learning and civic engagement was often how can we create programs and projects with community organizations in which we can help them in their work to eradicate some of the worst aspects of a system that was creating these social problems that we weren't addressing at all. I would have students come back from doing work in communities and say, I feel really good that I was able to, to help people. But 
if they were honest about the sociological readings and discussions we were having, they would say, I didn't do anything about poverty. Mm -hmm. And I ended up creating a workshop on social justice and service learning in which I hijacked the old social worker fable about the baby floating in the river who gets rescued. And the people who rescue the baby get celebrated as heroes until the next day when there's another baby. And so someone else rescues the baby and they get celebrated as a hero. And by the third day, when a baby comes floating down the river and needs to get rescued, the county decides to put someone by the river so that they can, police officers, so they can save babies whenever they come Mm -hmm. and babies keep coming. Yeah. And babies come day after day, week after week, year after year. The county creates all of this infrastructure to help these floating babies, get them an education, get them housing. And it's not until years later when one of the first babies who was rescued and was in the university that was doing service learning projects down by the river said, hey, has anyone ever gone up river to see where the babies are coming from? And I think we're still in that. Mm -hmm. We're still in this kind of crisis mode that suggests that service means somehow ameliorating some of the worst suffering, but it never gets to the social change from the foundations up. And I guess the last thing I would say is, again, that's so antithetical to where I started. I started with groups that believe that one could provide social services as a means of organizing. This was the Black Panther Party. This was SNCC in the South. You provided educational opportunities. You provided food programs. You provided the kinds of things that people needed who were desperate because they had little. But it was always part of a political education and a capacity building project, mm-hmm. communities empowering themselves to change the very st- structures that were causing those social problems to begin. Civic engagement kind of comes about as a shadow movement. It's a lot of people who are part of 60s and 70s organizing, thinking that they could have students working with organizations in the community at the same time that they learned the content of a course. Mm-hmm. And they found that it was really educational for students to do that but it never changed anything in the communities. So we're really at a time now where I do think the civic engagement movement, service learning in particular, is being challenged in this way. But I think we're maybe a day late and many dollars short and actually finding that community engagement can be not even a panacea, but even an effective means of social change. Yeah. What's the role of higher education in this then? Because I know you're someone who's who's had a long and, and successful career in higher education, but also in activism and in some of these other elements of community engagement and change, trying to affect change. One of the knocks on higher education and urine sociology in particular is that at times it's disconnected from actually affecting change in the world around us. And now we're at this, what what appears to be this inflection point around the future of higher education in the US. So I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on how you see your role and where you see uh, some of the opportunities and maybe the risks around higher education in enabling this community activism that you're talking about. It's interesting. I'm always of two minds and then something happens and then I've got three. So sometimes it's hard to organize these thoughts. On the one hand, I'd say that 
higher ed as a kind of elite privileged institution. And again, we're talking about elite higher ed. I'm not talking about community colleges, technical mm -hmm. schools, some state universities, although I would love to get into that as well. But the majority of higher ed that is elite, I think, was taken to task for this in the 60s by student movements. And whether, again, it was SNCC in the South and primarily African-American students resisting and protesting and challenging the way in which even the historically Black colleges were controlled um, by white supremacy, or whether it was the Berkeley free speech movement and saying, we don't want this kind of privileged middle-class Cold War society. And really the politics of higher ed from a student movement perspective were changing the landscape for higher ed in the 60s and 70s dramatically. And you could see those changes on the landscape, whether it's from affirmative action to Black studies, women's studies, peace studies, and other kinds of fields that were not only interdisciplinary, but really focused on a narrative of democracy. Mm -hmm. And you could see that happening and how it became a kind of almost, I don't want to say self-fulfilling prophecy, but it certainly became a narrative in which a lot of left and liberal faculty and students were comfortable in. And so you could have those projects in the community in which students were, quote unquote, doing good and learning about the history of economic inequality or the history of post-colonial literature. But nothing was really happening because the social movements that had brought those changes to bear in the 60s and 70s were no longer these, these progressive forces in society. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is higher education ends up being taken over from Reagan onward by corporations, by private interests. And the politics become increasingly marginalized if they're too far to the left. But civic engagement comes about at a time when there was actually increasing support for demonstrating connections to the community. And so civic engagement became a solution to the problem of alienation at the same time that it never addressed the root causes of that alienation to begin with. Mm -hmm. So which in essence really is the class nature of the institution. And that's where I get to where, where I find these other minds of mine. I wear all these hats and I love working on college campuses and I love teaching and I love performing for students and faculty. And just to, um, just to jump in, you're talking literally wearing hats. Literally. Because our, our listeners may not see that you literally are, are wearing multiple hats. Not at once. You're, well, you're I, I could do that too. Sure. Yes. A little Sherlock um, Holmes front and back kind of thing. But no, that's part of my compensation for giving lectures on campuses is to get a hat from the campus where I go. Because I, I, I just like that the paraphernalia of the performance, but also of the discourse, of being able to talk with students about things that really matter. There's really nothing better for, I think, from a teacher's perspective, no matter what you're teaching, is to talk about the importance of the knowledge that you're creating. And when things work really well, you're co-creating, right? You're talking about creating that knowledge with the students. Civic engagement at its best is co-creating that knowledge, not just with you and the student, but also with the community. And I, I wanna come back to that in a second because I do think my, my love for the work that I do and the places that I do it mean that I'm always looking for some better way to do it without doing what I fear may be necessary, which is that colleges and universities are so much a part of the problem from the very inception of them. They've been institutions um, of hierarchy and privilege and white supremacy and colonialism that I'm not sure 
we can rearrange deck chairs on this Titanic mm. in any effective way without actually suggesting we need serious alternatives mm -hmm. to higher ed. Yeah. And, and I would suggest that if we can't make all higher ed public, which may be one fundamental solution to part of this problem, is that we need alternative sites for education. And I've written a lot about labor colleges and workers' party colleges and the mm -hmm. history of that kind of alternative civic engagement that comes out of those traditions. Yeah. Um, and I think that may be where at least my post-requirement <laughs> time is spent. But I do think that if in fact we build a kind of partnerships and collaborations between campuses and communities, we have an opportunity not only to do more effective work in communities that really has an impact, that changes relationships and structures, not just throws another few tutors at, at an after-school program. Mm -hmm. But I also think we can change the institutions themselves. My biggest fear is that every time people on college campuses get an opportunity to make some significant structural change, that's when campuses tend to withdraw support. And there is an opportunity right now in education that I'm hearing with just about anyone that I speak with where things that were frozen, rigid, calcified over the years are now more fluid and there's more of an opportunity, at least in this relatively narrow window that we're in, to begin to affect some change. So as someone who has a history of focusing on these things and engaging with students and the community to try to affect some of these pivots, What's your thinking about where we are right now, the opportunities and risks that, that we're facing uh, collectively, and then maybe we can start to move towards some ideas about how uh, to think about the future? There's a lot of talk within sociology, but I see it in other disciplines, about decolonizing institutions and decolonizing the disciplines and the professions themselves. And part of that is driven by a kind of post-colonial anti-white supremacy narrative. I think it's an important one. And it really suggests that we need to rethink how these disciplines, how these knowledge bases and how these institutions themselves were created. And when students rise up to have statues taken down on college campuses because they're statues representing plantation owners and, and, and the slaveocracy, then, you know, that's an important movement for those students. But those movements also have to be shaped by not just a kind of recognition of who these people are and how we have to change the symbols of these institutions, but that these institutions themselves are still riddled by this kind of stratified elitism. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that a strong left movement is simply about diversifying the elite. It's really about restructuring our, our economy and our politics so that we rid ourselves of that elitism mm -hmm. and we restore a real democracy. Yeah. So in order for democracy to flourish, we need to not only have these movements that are about decolonization, but that we have to get at what colonization itself was, which was not simply a, a racial project, it was a capitalist project. And perhaps in fact, we need to not only talk about decolonization, but we also have to talk about imperialism, which right. I really now call neoliberalism. Right. I think right. neoliberalism is really, Marxists used to call it late capitalism, but I think that was a hopeful moniker. We're really looking at what imperialism was and, and, and remains, even in, 
you can see what happened in with, with post-colonialism is that imperialism never left. Right. So I think that if we're going to have any kind of movement within higher ed, it has to be connected to movements outside the institution. And that means not only collaborating with community organizations, but as I suggested in the handbook for service learning and community engagement, we need to do a much better job of encouraging and supporting students who want to do service learning projects with a local Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your knowledge of the history of social movements in the U.S. is really helpful to this conversation. It does sound as though this cold period between the Reagan era and perhaps the last few years, do you see that changing now? Like Black Lives Matter was gaining some momentum. There's been a lot more activation, particularly the generation that we're calling Gen Z is emerging with much more of a sense of engagement and activism, whether it's social justice or the environment, a lot of these other issues. It does seem as though there is potentially an awakening that's similar to what we saw uh, with a lot of the movements that you were citing before. I'd be curious uh, for your historical perspective on that. Yeah, I don't want to overstate the lack of kind of political action from Reagan onward. I think it would be a mistake and just plain wrong to ignore the different political movements that were occurring. I just think that it was certainly a denouement from the 60s and 70s. And you go back to pretty classic work like Poor People's Movements by Pivot and Cloward that suggests that the heyday of these social and political movements are often co-opted. And so the state tends to find ways to normalize them and address some of the worst aspects of what those movements were trying to accomplish. And then eventually you see those movements dissipate. And whether you're talking about unions and the the communist and socialist parties in the 30s, you can certainly look at the 60s and 70s as a similar dynamic. As I said, at Michigan in the 90s, there was still plenty of anti-apartheid activism and third world solidarity movements. There was the welfare warrior movements. There was squatting movements in the 90s. ACORN was doing some incredible organizing around the country. Obviously, the Gulf War was a, a significant issue in the 90s and continuing on. So things were still happening. And then in in the 2000s, we have Occupy Wall Street, other movements. And so people have always been trying to push. I just think that so much of the way in which colleges and universities have engaged with what they've promoted as the cause of democracy and the cause of citizenship has always been very limited Uh, and very exclusive. What we're really finding now is that with all of the rhetoric around and serious recovering of history, the 1619 Project, um, regardless of historical errors that people have pointed out, no one has been able to argue with kind of the basic premise, right, of who was here from the beginning and whose enslavement was at the very genetic beginning of what the United States would become. I think that all of this knowledge production is, is vital. But I think it's the movements that are burgeoning are are the potentials for serious change. And so Mm -hmm. I want to see, I think Black Lives Matter is probably the most exciting social movement, in part because of what we've seen and how virulent the opposition has been. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think because in many ways, it's been part of a global movement. Mm -hmm. So I think that 
the reaction of the rest of the world to Black Lives Matter is also not a sign of our leadership in the United States. It's a sign of the resonance with what other people have been doing around the world for the last 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. Similarly, climate change is doing that same thing. Mm -hmm. So it is possible that an anti-climate change movement, which inevitably has to be anti-capitalist, and a Black Lives Matter movement, which I would argue also has to be anti-capitalist, could bring together this global convergence of people who are recognizing that so many of my radical cohorts say there must be an alternative. And I think the biggest mistake that we can make as academics is to think that we can tell people what that alternative is going to be. And so for me, the excitement is that over the last few years, I've become more and more engaged with global scholars who are parts of movements, who are saying, these are the ways in which we need to work. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the answer is going to be. We don't know what you know that next thing is going to look like. Will it be a socialist uh, society? I don't know. Socialism will be involved. We can't have a society based on democracy and a semblance of equality without talking about things like basic income, mm-hmm. uh, guaranteed maximum wage, and their universal health care, et cetera. And, and the climate is being destroyed by an economy that's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so we really need to come up with these alternatives, but we won't come up with these alternatives if we don't change some very basic structural inequalities. Yeah. And then the role of the academic or the educator, you have very strong beliefs around what makes for an effective educator. And it may not be the traditional construct of getting a lot of papers published and and plugging into the sort of research industrial complex. There's another element to it, which is connected to the community, but also inspiring and instigating and and maybe breaking into song. So I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on that. Sure. The the ways in which education has opportunities is because it's an inherent part of all social systems, right? All social systems have to educate the people in that system in order for that system to propagate and to reproduce. But that's always reproducing the inequalities that already exist as well. And so we have a history of education actually encouraging people to challenge those structures that, that oppress them. And so education, as I suggest in Kill It to Save It, was banned for, for uh, enslaved workers because people thought that it would encourage them to rebel. Education can also be a way to really squelch rebellion and try to give people an education in the ways in which the norms of that society and the inequalities seem natural. And what could be more natural than a college degree to suggest that you've earned your place in this society? There's always that possibility, but the education itself has to cut across the grain. I think that there's plenty of room for lots of different ways in which people educate other people. And I wouldn't want to be dogmatic about it. What I want to be dogmatic about is what the goals are. Because if the goals are simply the individual kind of career-oriented future of a particular person who's probably already privileged, but if not, I'm certainly looking to gain those privileges, then I don't care who's educating who and how they're doing it. The system within which they're educating people is destined to fail if the goal is a true democracy or a better society for all of our people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what I call a kill it to save it mentality. So my feeling for me anyway is not only do I want to give people information and not only do I want to incorporate them in communities so that they can understand how people are struggling to try and change conditions, but I also want to give them a history of this has happened. Historically, people have succeeded. Mm. Uh, revolutions have been fought um, and won. And we can be a part of that. Nobody in the 1950s I guarantee you, nobody in the 1950s would have seen the 1960s coming. Mm. But if you were paying close attention to bus boycotts in Baton Rouge, and if you were paying attention to the anti-nuke movement, and if you were paying attention to kind of women not being happy with the 1950s reconstruction of nuclear family, mm -hmm. then you would have seen that these things were murmuring, these mm -hmm. things and if I can convince students that is still possible, the next step is to mobilize them. And one of the most important ways to mobilize people is to show that there is joy in the struggle, that mm. there is joy, in the, that you can have fun. And if people are going to get the courage to put their bodies on the line and their lives on the line, which is what we're talking about, we're not talking about soup kitchens. You may want to help in a soup kitchen. I have nothing, nothing wrong with it, and I've done it for my whole lifetime. But as far as being a part of a movement, when you're working in that soup kitchen, what are you talking to people about? Are you doing voter registration as well? Talking to staff about how they can organize the people who come through. Are you having any kind of educational opportunities for people who are coming through? A book club, a movie night. There's so many different ways to build out from service provision so that you're really creating and enhancing democracy. Mm -hmm. I want to encourage students, especially, to find joy, to find each other. That solidarity is not just something we talk about, it's something you feel. Sing with other people around you. When you yeah. hold hands, yeah. when you march on a picket line, it's a visceral experience that there is no other, I think, replacement for. You can talk about things, you can go to a protest, but until you feel a part of the people around you, and that solidarity gets a real significant meaning to it um, mm -hmm. so that it is, it's emotional as well as it's, uh, and, and physical as well as intellectual and political. That to me is when movements are at their best. Yeah. And it does seem like a lot of people have had, especially in light of Black Lives Matter movement, there has been a much broader, even global, to your point, uh, connection to what it feels like to be part of a, a movement and I like to talk about the zeitgeist. I like to say things are zeitgeisty, but it does feel like there is a shift in consciousness that is happening. And I don't recall this, the part of the 70s that I was around for, I wasn't particularly conscious for, but based on the research and what I've read about over the years, there was a very different sensibility. And it does feel like you're tapping into that. And, and also it is a way in which uh, you're connecting to that history and you're also doing it through song. So we did talk about perhaps you regaling us with song, you imparting to us your musical ability in a way that connects to the history of labor and activism and social movements. If you're up for it, I'd love to, to hear something. Like all good folk singers, I've got a little patter to do first. And that is that if I'm thinking about the the best work that I've done, I write about a student of mine in my first book on the Hamptons who became part of a student coalition to get the campus custodial unit rehired by the college they'd been outsourced. And to me, one of the joys of what 
I do is that when students get involved in that kind of action in which there's organizing going on, there's organizing with custodial workers, we're singing songs, but we're talking, we're laughing, we're having a, a, a potluck. You know, that connection that you might get in a mass movement or a mass demonstration and singing and holding hands, you're also getting in, in different ways. And so this kind of work, even though the social movements themselves may not have been as active and as nurturing as, as they were when I first started, could be recreated. And I think about this student in particular, I'll, I'll embarrass her if she ever listens to this, Cassie Waters. Cassie went on to be an organizer, first with Jobs with Justice here in Boston, and then down in Tennessee as an organizer for the Save Our Cumberland uh, Mountains. And, and now is one of the lead organizers for a movement called Campus Workers United, which is organizing campus workers, regardless of their position on campus, so faculty and custodians alike, but organizing them at Southern universities in right-to-work states. Mm -hmm. And they were really successful in Tennessee, and they moved on to Georgia and Mississippi. And to think that what I think is a leading edge here now for union organizing, which is getting back in some ways to the old industrial union model, can work in higher ed, it seems to me that really can change the landscape, mm. right? A little bit more of a worker ownership over the institution. Faculty might find that their best um, way to get uh, faculty governance back on college campuses is to join up with the custodians. Mm -hmm. So I think that would really change the landscape. <laughs> However, you've got to be willing to put your body on the line. And I'd love to sing this song by Ann Feeney, who unfortunately recently passed away. Um, for many years, I referred to Ann as the Woody Guthrie of our age. And uh, this is a song that she wrote and sang on picket lines around the world called, Have You Been to Jail for Justice? Was it Cesar Chavez or maybe it was Dorothy Day? Some say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. But no matter who your mentors are, I think it's plain to see that if you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? You're a friend of mine. Well, you law-abiding citizens, come listen to this song. Laws were made by people, and people can be wrong. Once unions were against the law, but slavery was fine. Women were denied the vote. Children worked the mines. Oh, the more you study history, the less you can deny it. A rotten law stays on the books till folks like us defy it. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice, your friend of mine? The law is supposed to serve us. So are the police. And when the system fails, it's up to us to speak our peace. It takes eternal vigilance for justice to prevail. So get the courage from your convictions. Let them haul you off to jail. Have you been to jail for justice? 
I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice Will your friend of mine? Have you been to jail for justice Will your friend of mine? Wow, that's some stuff. I don't think we ever had that on the show before, both in terms of community learning, service learning, all that kind of stuff, but also just a great performance of a folk song I had never heard. So that's quite a way to take them out, Corey. But concluding thoughts, what are the takeaways? Frequently, I hear people say when you're interviewing someone, it's what, so what, now what? You know, right. so we're talking about this stuff. You kind of gave us some reason why it's important. What's next? What's what's your takeaway? How, how do you bring this conversation to conclusion? Sure. One of the things that I'm seeing more of, and I'm realizing since I'm still reading and learning, especially about global uh, movements, is that more and more people are not waiting for the state and they're not waiting for formal education. One of the things that I found happening over the last year is people taking it in their own hands to make a difference. And one of the things I'm looking at right now is the rise of mutual aid societies and the ways in which a lot of these mutual aid societies are not just getting groceries together to share with people who need it, but they are also trying to organize people, trying to give them political information, making sure they register to vote. They're trying to give them meetings and places to go, and they're holding their own meetings, trying to organize local political power from these services that they're providing. And they see it all as one kind of integrated effort to change society. And I think we can take a lesson from that in higher ed. I was suggesting alternatives, the history of educational institutions that were outside of the university and creating your own alternative um, universities. I learned this about my dad. He came to live with us just before he passed last month. And he told me that he had taken classes with W.E.B. Du Bois in New York City at the Jefferson University Workers College in New York. And he was working in an electric factory. He's part of the United Electrical Workers. And W.E.B. Du Bois was teaching a class on Pan-Africanism and colonialism. These are the places, I think, that we need to start creating and looking for. And I'm excited that movements like Black Lives Matter are creating spaces for that. And these are the places where I think the future of anything revolutionary are going to come from. And I'm excited that we have the opportunity to do it. I just hope that we recognize the constraints that the institutions, that the economy, and that really what neoliberal expectations are and how they limit us. Because until we're ready to fight back against those, maybe risking our jobs and maybe risking our own freedom, then I think we're always going to come up short. Yeah, lots to chew on, lots to listen to. Uh, it really fascinating conversation. If folks want to track you down, Corey, or if they want to find out more? Is there anywhere they, sh they should go? Certainly anybody can contact me via email, cdolgan at stonehill.edu. But I do have a fledgling website that not only has uh, promotional materials for books and singing lectures, which is what that song was a part of, is a singing mm. lecture that I do. But really any anything that people want to talk to me about, it's corydolgan.com. And uh, the sooner my daughters help me uh, build the website, the better it will be. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're onto something uh, outside of just the intellectual component, incorporating music into education and blending music and the spoken word, something 
the folk movement has been uh, way ahead on for quite some time. And I think it's time for the rest of the educational universe, just universe in general to catch up on. Corey, it's been an amazing conversation. I really appreciated your time. Uh, thanks so much for joining. Sure. Thank you, Michael, for having me. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. And for our listeners, hopefully uh, you got something out of this conversation. Let us know what you think. Write us a review. Share the love. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.